Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so this morning we're going to do something a little fun. Uh, we're going to play a little game called Name That Tune, all right? And uh, I'm going to really need your participation. This isn't like, okay, Pastor Gabe's being rhetorical. Don't call me Pastor Gabe. So that's first thing. But two, th- this is not me being rhetorical, okay? So, but, but, to, but, but really, I'm looking for participation, and it's pretty self-explanatory. We have the band up here this morning, at least some of the folks from our band this morning, and uh, they're going to play a little snippet of the tune. And as soon as you think you know what it is, Shout it out, okay? So don't be, so here, try this. Say yes for me. Okay, good. So you do talk. So this is really good. You've tried it. You've tested it. So as soon as you know what the song is, I want you uh, to be able to shout it out. And I've always wanted to do this, okay? I love night, you know, late night television. So (laughs) hit it. (laughs) Yes! Excellent. Great job, Sean. Way to go. But seriously, this is church, so don't do that again. Now, um, let's do, uh, let's go for the next one. Let's hit up the next one. Let's hit up the next one. See if you can guess it. It is well. Very good. Very good. Very good. Man, you guys are really, really excellent at this. Okay, one more. One more. Okay, we're going to do one more. One more. All right, hit it up. The next one. So excellent, everybody. Uh, it's Our God by Chris Tomlin. Really good, really good question there, Carl. Um, here's the deal. Everybody gets 50 points towards something really important that Jesus is happy about. So way to go. Really, really way, great way to start off Sunday morning in the middle of summer. Can we give the band a round of applause here? Yeah. Excellent. Well, good, good. If uh, I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I am a pastor, actually, um, in all seriousness. And it is a joy to be together with you. And, and seriously, though, this song, this last one in particular from Chris Tomlin, it is titled Our God. And it, it's been a song that's been a comfort to me at different points in my life. And if you know the song well, in the middle of the chorus, it goes like this. And maybe for some of you, you're going to say, oh, that's what it was. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against And the answer to that question, if you know the storyline of Scripture, is of course nothing and no one, right? Nothing can stand against us. And yet, when we go about our everyday and we come to this time tomorrow, you step into work or you get that email or you get that phone call, when you start thinking about that question, who can be against us, the feeling that bubbles up inside of you when it comes to this answer is anyone and everyone. When you feel like maybe that coworker is seeking to undercut your work or that boss is feeling overbearing or that bill is never going to get paid, you start to think, who can be against us? Anyone and everyone. 
when you're wrestling through just a difficulty in physical health, when you're wrestling in a relationship with a family member and you start to think who can be against us, you think anyone and everyone. And some of you know this all too well. Some of you here this morning are, are tired. You barely pulled yourself up to come and be here today. You're, you're just trying to survive. And quite frankly, you may not even be sure if you're, you're where God has you, if you're in the, the right place. And you're wondering, God, how long do I have to just feel like I'm surviving? Others of you, you may feel like you're at the high point of success. You feel like you, you may be doing great. And, and honestly, the big goal for you is just to maintain, to keep succeeding, to keep going, to keep bolstering that security. So some of you may feel like you're just trying to survive. Others of you may feel like you're on the heights of success. But one thing is true, and you know this to be true, survival or success are not robust categories. They're not robust enough to describe life, the Christian life, and it's certainly not the Christian calling. There's something better. We've been walking through this little book called Acts. And if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. It's kind of the origin story of the church. It's how you and I got to be here some 2,000 years later. It's the story of those first followers of Jesus. And we've seen time and time again that actually God's not ultimately calling Christians to just survive the chaos of the world. And he's not actually promising success in every circumstance. It's neither that pessimistic nor that optimistic. But when we follow Jesus... When we seek to pursue him and he's with us, there is a category that does robustly describe what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the language we've been using over the past few weeks through the book of Acts. And that is, we are sent. And wherever you've been sent, we've seen that this morning with RJ, wherever you've been sent, this time tomorrow, you've been sent no matter what you do and how it's shaped, either in explicit ways or non-explicit ways, it is to make an impact, to highlight, to point to Jesus. That's the day-to-day -day position of the Christian, knowing that God has sent you where you are. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, welcome. It's not an accident that you're here this morning. And if you're wondering what does it look like to follow Jesus, you need to understand that following Jesus doesn't just change where you're going to head someday. It changes everything about your everyday now. And far too often we try to bifurcate the two, but it's a both and. It's about God changing everything you're doing every day as you look forward to where he's taking you someday. And isn't that what we just heard read about here in this early passage in Acts chapter 13? There's this church gathering, and there's these two folks, Barnabas and Saul, who's also called Paul. He's the apostle, really well-known guy who's wrote most of the New Testament. And they're sent off by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of this really weird explicit gathering where the church lays hands on them. They affirm their gifting, and they say, God's doing something in your life. The Holy Spirit is leading you to something else, and they send them out. And sometimes it's not that explicit, and sometimes it is. And sure, this sending is really unique for Paul and Barnabas and the specific things they need to do and are called to do there in the first century, but what we need to remember is that this is also true of every single follower of Jesus, that you are sent where you are for impact, pointing, highlighting, furthering the gospel. But that's not the primary focus of this morning. <laughs> if there's one thing instead 
that flows out of this understanding that I, I want us to remember. If there's something that's at the center of the passage, the sum total of Acts chapter 13, it's this. When God puts you in the sent position, expect opposition. When God puts you in that sent position, when he puts you in that place where he has you, you are to expect opposition. And this is important. This isn't an if statement. This is a when statement. This isn't if God happens to intervene and give some sort of purpose to what you're doing every day. This is when you come to understand that God has given you purpose where he has sent you. Then you come to expect opposition. Far too often we expect that when God is with us, who can be against us? And we think easy peasy. Or at least we can get frustrated when there is some level of obstacle or some level of opposition. And, and I'm going to ask you to do something for me this morning. Not only were we interactive talking about naming that tune, but that was a bit of a warm-up, okay? Because this morning, I want you to do me a favor, okay? And this is, gonna, this is as much for you as it is for me. There's a lot of studies that show that when we repeat things or we say things out loud, we're likely to remember them. So when I say, when God puts you in the sent position... Expect, you're going to say, opposition. Okay, let's, okay, very good. Very good first try. I think you've got a lot more in you. I believe in you, okay, to really, really be with us this morning. Okay, so let's try this again. Remember, this is for you. There's a lot of studies out there that show that when we repeat this, when we actually say things out loud, it lodges in our brains and in our hearts in a much more effective and long-term way. And what we often do in those moments when we, are, when we know God sent us to an area, it can sometimes be so surprising. And this morning we want to anchor in the expectation of opposition. So let's try that again. When God puts you in the sent position, expect. Opposition. When God puts you in the sent position, expect. Opposition. When God puts you in the sent position, don't be surprised. But expect, ah, very good, excellent. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. Today we're going to look at two scenes of opposition in the chapter of chapter 13 in Acts. And I want you to look for a common thread. In both of these scenes, one thing is common, okay, that, that is true, that there, there's opposition going on to what God has sent Paul and Barnabas to do. But there's a reason for that. And I want you to see if you can decipher what that common thread is. So let's, let's see if we can rediscover that together. Look at the first scene there in verse 4, right after they get this amazing sending experience, right? The church surrounds them. They're going out to do what God's called them to do. And they start making their way across this island of Salamis. And they're telling people about Jesus. And they're going to synagogue after synagogue, telling people about how Jesus is the true Messiah. And everything's going great until they get to Paphos. And they come to this guy named Elimus which his name actually means magician. But, but it's not this kind of magician, okay? Like, they, they probably really wish that Paul and Barnabas would disappear. <laughs> but they, but they, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. He's a false prophet. And whenever someone is a false prophet, true prophets, right? They speak the truth about who God is and where God is taking the world. False prophets, they misrepresent God and where God is taking the world. And the reason they do that is not because they care about people, but that they ultimately are trying to puff themselves up. They're either in a mode of survival or they're chasing after success. You see this? They're just trying to survive and they think that's the only way they can survive is if they distort God and somehow build up their influence or they've got their eyes set on success no matter the cost that they will sacrifice anything, even truth. And you know what also this guy Elemis is named? You know what his other name is? Bar Jesus, which isn't just like a really cool spot that could pop up in Westport, you know. 
where the bartender would say, I'd give my life for your best drink, Bar Jesus. No, like, no, that's not it at all. Bar Jesus is son of. So he even takes this moniker that he's like the son of Jesus. Jesus is a pretty well-known character across the Middle East at this point about this man who died and rose again, or at least there's rumors about that. And he's like, I am the son of Jesus. I've got a lot going on. My name is Elemis. I throw card tricks at you. Like, this is what he's seeking to do. He's seeking to be manipulative and distort who God is and where God's taking the world in order to puff himself up. And this manipulation and these lies have led to a lot of success, actually. He has a lot of influence with high-ranking officials. Look here at verse 7. He was with the proconsul, a governor, kind of of sorts, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So you can imagine Elemas, who, who's really crafted his whole vocation, his whole job around deception. Paul and Barnabas are speaking the truth. And Elemas feels like his job is at stake. His livelihood is at stake. And then we read in verse 8, But Elemas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. When God puts you in the sent position, expect... Not everyone's excited about the truth, folks. Right? We know this. Not everyone is excited about the truth. Not everybody is really pursuing what is best for everyone. If you're chasing success, then you all know, you, you know too well that sometimes even the truth can feel like an obstacle rather than an on-ramp to what you want right now. And that can feel surprising to some of us when that pops up, when it's like, whoa, 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 what's going on? This is what's true. This is what's good. Why is someone opposing this? But Paul, listen, Paul isn't surprised. And I love his response. Jump down to verse 9 here. He says, but, but Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas and said, you son of the devil. Don't try that one at work. That might not work well. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. So immediately, Elymas becomes blind, and he's like reaching out, and somebody has to lead him by the arm. You see what's so powerful about this? Whenever the gospel's proclaimed, it reveals the truth about everyone. Elemus was a blind guide to Sergius Paulus. And in that moment, he's revealed for who he is. Blind, trying to lead others astray. But then Sergius Paulus, we read in the text, he believes, he sees what's happening, and he finally sees true power and ultimately the warrant and the plausibility of the true message about who Jesus is, not this false son of Jesus. And he believes. It's beautiful. But not without opposition. Not without someone pressing against. Being sent isn't easy. Instead, when God puts you in the sent position, expect opposition. opposition. Very good. That was good. So let's move on to this next scene, okay? So that's the first scene of opposition. The second, Paul and Barney, they keep going, right? They land at Antioch in Poseidon, which isn't the same Antioch where they started there at the beginning of chapter 13. It's kind of like we have a Columbus, Ohio and a Columbus, Georgia. It's like, you ever seen Tommy Boy? Anyone? Okay, never mind. But there, you know, it's like, there's like, there's multiple different Columbuses. Actually, the, the king of Syria, King Seleucus, at that time, he really loved his daddy, Antiochus, and he'd like named 16 cities Antioch. 
So it's like, you're Antioch, you're Antioch, you're Antioch. Look, Dad. Like, no, that's, that's cool. But that's why there's all these Antiochs all over the place. Or KCK or KCMO. We won't name who's first and better. But Paul and Barnabas, so they go to synagogue on the Sabbath. And as was common, they started reading from the law and the prophets, which is a way of describing what we now call often the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul stands up and he gives this rousing sermon that covers actually verses 16 through 41 here in our text. We're not going to go through his three-point sermon this morning. What you need to know are a couple things. One, it's, it's strikingly similar to what Peter had preached earlier in Acts. If you go back to Peter's first sermon in Acts, it's strikingly similar. And what we need to understand right away is that the church is unified in their message. It's not like they're figuring this out as they go along. They know who Jesus is. They know what God's come to do in the world. And they're proclaiming a consistent good news of the exclusivity of Jesus at the center of the world. And you know what's also at the center of this message? is grace upon grace upon grace. I mean, the people are just utterly astounded by grace. Paul highlights, he goes through scripture and starts highlighting some patterns of God's grace towards all of humanity, then specifically through Israel and how it finds its climax in Jesus and how not even death could hold down the true king of the world. And it was one of those days at church where the sermon just lands you know, like people are giving Paul high fives. They're tweeting certain quotes from his sermon. And they're just like, we can't wait to come back to church next week. Like it was every pastor's dream. So, but what do we know? What do we know in the midst of this? When God puts you in the sent position, expect. Opposition. Excellent. So opposition, anybody? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so cue the following. Thank you so much. Cue the following Sabbath, it feels like the whole city, actually, so this is one week later, the whole city comes together and they're, they're looking forward to hearing from Paul and Barnabas what they're going to say next. And to be clear, so the first time he preaches, he's actually in the synagogue and he's speaking to Jews and he's speaking to God-fearing Gentiles, those who are basically converts to Judaism, those who had embraced the God of Israel. But now these Gentiles are the ones who are at like temple to Aphrodite last week. This is like everybody. This is the people that cursed you out at work and suddenly they're sitting next to you in the pew and you're like, wait a second, everybody's here to hear what Paul has to say. And look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, so a specific group of Jews, not Jews everywhere, but this specific group of subset of Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, this word translated as jealousy here is a really important word. Now, what, it's, a, it's a word of heightened emotion, to be sure, but what it isn't is as if, like, somehow the, the, the Jewish folks are like, hey, we want to be at the center of attention and that's it. Like it's somehow just they only want to be at the center of attention and we don't want anybody else to be a part of what's God's go what God's doing. That's part of it, but that doesn't capture the sum total. Many commentators have highlighted how what's really going on here is actually like a righteous indignation from the Jewish folks. They're, they're absolutely angry that everybody else gets to now be a part of this without any sort of quid pro quo. So listen, N.T. Wright, one commentator brilliantly puts it this way. He says, we can see why many of the Jews who heard this message in the first century rejected it angrily. It must have sounded like to them like a compromise. All these years they've been maintaining their Jewish distinctiveness. 
keeping themselves clean from the impure pagan lifestyle of the wider world. And now all these pagans surrounding them are going to come flooding into their world with so much, not, without so much as a by your leave. This was blasphemous nonsense. Or so it seemed if you didn't understand the gospel. So how Paul and Barnabas, two ethnically Jewish guys, how do they respond to the opposition of this particular group of Jews in this particular town? They keep going where they're sent, don't they? They just now focus their attention on the Gentiles, those who are ready to embrace the gospel. And if you continue reading through Acts chapter 13, they just now focus in on those who are willing and ready to receive rather than those who are opposing the gospel message. They understood all too well that when God puts you in the sent position, expect, but why? Why? Like why, when God puts you in the sent position, should you expect opposition? What's the common thread here? It wasn't that somehow Paul and Barnabas were jerks. It, was, it wasn't that somehow God had forgotten them, like kind of got them started, got entangled in something else that was going on in some other place in the world, and then, whoa, I got to get back over to the... No, it's not like God forgot what was going on, and it wasn't as if they dropped the ball or failed. Sometimes we can see that. It's like, oh, things aren't going according to plan. You're not seeing the results you thought you would see. That must be because you're not good enough in your role. That's not always the explanation. Sometimes it is. But when God puts you in the sent position, expect. And here's why. The common thread that's between, in between both of these two scenes of opposition is this. The gospel always, always challenges the status quo. The gospel always challenges the status quo. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust it, saves you from sin and gives you new life now and into eternity, it often affirms the good things that we see in a culture wherever we find you. You know, you, do, you don't demonize the culture that's behind you. There's not, there's not all brokenness around us. There's some really good things. But more often, it disrupts life as we know it, and it challenges the death and the cycles of destruction that are in any particular culture. The gospel, don't we see this in like throughout this passage? It challenges Elemis's world. He built up this world of deception, manipulation, and lies. And when the gospel comes in, he feels threatened and rightfully so because the gospel does not uphold or leave lies and manipulation to stand. Those who have built their lives on manipulation and lies should feel insecure when the gospel message is proclaimed. And Sergius Paulus the gospel rescues him from this twisted worldview of who God is and where God's taking the world. The gospel challenged the status quo of this Jewish religious system. Their identity wasn't in the God who had chose them, but in their chosenness from their God. And so that they got so wrapped up in that that they missed what God was doing in their particular context now through the true Messiah, Jesus and if you keep reading to the end of Acts chapter 13, you see the gospel challenged the status quo in Antioch broadly. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 50. He says, Some of the Jews convinced the most respected women and leading men of the town that their precious way of life was about to be destroyed. Alarmed, they turned on Paul and Barnabas and forced them 
to leave. The gospel always challenges the status quo. And people, and systems, and whole cities. Is that what you're seeing? How's the gospel challenging the status quo where you are? And I, and I want to say this first because I think this can sound really arrogant, you know. But first, the reality is, is this isn't just Christians have it all right. And then we go out there and we prove everybody how they're all wrong. First, the gospel should challenge our own status quos that are in our hearts because we often are both beautiful, beautifully designed in God's image and still broken and still seeking to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. So first, the gospel should be challenging our status quo within us right? We should be going through a rhythm to say, okay, where am I getting my ideas from? Where am I getting my ideals? Are they from scripture or from wider culture? Where am I getting that from? Who's, ult- who's got the ultimate say over the way in which I lead my life? The gospel should be challenging our status quo. But then broadly, how is the gospel challenging the status quo where you are? Because remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not anywhere by accident. You're not anywhere by accident. Think about where you are. Think about the relationships, your family, your friendships. Think about your work or that search for work process. Who are the people that God's bringing in your life? Think about your your proximate physical neighbors, whether it be in your loft complex, your apartment complex, or your neighborhood. Think about the relationships and friendships that God has brought together. Think about your school, if you're in school, your kids, your spouse. God has you there for a very specific reason. You aren't there by accident. And you haven't been entrusted with the gospel to just be nice. That's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is. But not niceness. Hey, just be nice. No. The gospel challenges the status quo. Not to be jerks, but to be transparent about death that we see in ourselves, others, and the broader city and culture. How's the gospel challenging the status quo where you are? For example, I just want to give us a couple examples to kind of think through this, just contextually. When we share and live into the gospel, the gospel begins to challenge the status quo around singleness. The new life in Christ challenges any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. But simultaneously, it frees us from the requirement that we often see in traditional cultures that you have to be married to be fully human. We don't see that in the gospel. There's no celebration, freedom, or encouragement of any sort of sexual activity outside of the true definition of marriage that we see in God's Word, but there's simultaneously no requirement to now be married. Instead, singleness is something to be pursued in celibacy, not for self-indulgence, but for utter self-sacrifice with a heightened potential and capacity, just like Jesus did, a really faithful single guy who's fully God, and Paul. An utter recategorization that challenges the status quo of singleness. The same could be true of family. How the gospel challenges the status quo of family. Now the family is no longer ultimately defined by bloodlines such that the nuclear family becomes idolized and ostracizes the surrounding community. Nor is the family to then be so consumed with extracurriculars that your kids and you yourself are exhausted because you're trying to prove that you're worth it to the world. Instead, the family becomes a place of radical hospitality that isn't hurried. Don't we wish that more folks, me included, were living more faithfully into what the gospel calls for family and singleness? 
How's the gospel challenging the status quo where you are? The same could be said of racial division. The same could be said around our vocation. The same could be said around the Me Too movement. I mean, you've seen probably Tom Nelson's email that went out about how we as a church are thinking through that. And Nathan Miller, another one of our senior pastors, blogs on how we as the Christian faith, like brothers and sisters in this family, should be on the front lines in this conversation. This impacts every square inch of how we live our lives. How is the gospel challenging your status quo where you are? Because listen, change, change is never easy. And quite frankly, it's even threatening for those who feel like the gospel will cost them. There are plenty of elements and plenty of crowds who are just trying to survive or feel like they're in this place of fear and so trying to survive or are pursuing at all costs to succeed or dominate. But you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been sent. And that's a different category that supersedes even those. It won't be easy. But when God puts you in the sent position, you're to expect. And one of the greatest temptations in that moment. If you really live into this, one of the greatest temptations is to be exhausted and to give up. Because how many times, I don't know about you, but you, you, get, you get into this moment. It can be in all kinds of relationships and all different spheres of influence where you start to think, oh God, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Or, or nobody's going to believe. Nobody seems to be believing when I'm sharing the gospel. Should I just give up? Or no one seems to be listening. Or injustice seems like it's winning. And then the temptation is just like, fine, I'm done. I give up. This is going nowhere. And the opposition... Sure, you may not have been surprised by a little bit, but when you start to see the mass amounts of opposition, just how broken the world is, it can feel utterly exhausting if you're, if you're surprised by it, if it takes you off guard. It's hard enough by the power of the Spirit when you know it's coming to stand under it. So don't be surprised. Instead, I want you to see the example of Paul and Barnabas and hear the call to keep going. You know, Allie and I were talking about this passage just this last week and she brilliantly said she's like we get this with a lot of other things like when you're you know practicing an instrument if you want to be really good even when you're frustrated and you don't want to practice you keep going if you want to be excellent at a sport even if you don't want to go to practice that day and you'd rather go to you know shake shack and get yourself some burgers and stuff like you go to practice like, what is it? Because you really believe and you pursue and you keep going. That's the only way really dynamic change and training is going to take place, is to keep going. And when God puts us in the sent position, we have to expect. Let's try one more time. When God puts us in the sent position, we have to expect. Because we're not promised success. We're not promised comfort. We won't even be promised that everybody's going to believe or even that sometimes we're going to see anybody believe. We see that sometimes in Acts as well. But when you lean into the sent position, here's what you are promised. You're promised, and I know this may seem counterintuitive, but you're promised joy. Do you see that? I mean, after everything that happens, Paul and Barnabas, I love this. They kind of dust their shoulders off. Really, they dust their feet off, which is a sign of like, fine, you get what you asked for. You kick this out of the town then God's judgment will come upon you, which does not feel very culturally exciting for us who don't like to talk about judgment, but this is the reality in which people have chosen to disregard the gospel message. And Paul and Barnabas, how do they respond? Do they feel, leave, leave feeling guilty like they'd failed God? 
Do they leave feeling ashamed of the gospel message that they were to carry? Do they, do they leave blaming each other? Paul, how dare you? you? You dropped it. Barnabas, I wish you'd have just said that a little clear. No, we don't see that at all. They come to expect opposition when God has sent them somewhere because of how broken the world is and the evil one that continues to work in the world. Such that we read there in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They leave together with joy. joy. Listen, friends, listen. This is so important. Joy is found when you are in the sent position. When you understand that God sent you there, not whether there's opposition or not, not whether you're actually seeing a ton of fruit or not, but whether you're being sent and you understand that God has you there on purpose. And it's this deep-seated gratitude that you get to be a part of what God's doing in the world. And God is doing amazing things through those who keep going, isn't he? I mean, think about if Paul and Barnabas had stopped there. Listen, everywhere we go, it seems like nobody's really wanting this thing. I think we just need to wash our hands. God must not be in it. Praise God they didn't say that. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. When he experienced opposition in pursuing racial justice, which we see throughout the pages of Scripture. What if he just stopped when he experienced opposition? What about Mother Teresa when she experienced opposition in Calcutta or was pursuing the life of some of the most vulnerable and the voiceless, the unborn, and she was relentless in this cause? What about Billy Graham, where he went and proclaimed the gospel in so many different contexts, and many times people said no. What if he just stopped when he experienced opposition? What about William Wilberforce, when he was fighting against the slave trade in England over decades, not just a couple weeks, but decades amidst opposition and cultural upheaval? What would our world be like? How much more not only their joy, but our joy would have been diminished if they would have not kept going. And praise God. The writer of Hebrews so brilliantly says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus endured much opposition and affliction. What? For the joy set before him. We have an amazing king. And we've been given so much grace. And God is sending us to do his work. And when God puts you in the sent position, expect. This is our mission, folks. Keep going. Don't stop. Let's pray. God, I know that folks are in different positions this morning. Some came in with a pep in their step, ready to start another week because they're in the height of their careers or it just seems like everything, the gears are just locking together and, and progress is moving forward and they're excited about what you're doing in their lives. Others are just, they feel like they're, they're in that survival mode. They're not even sure they're, that they're where you, where you have them, like they're in the right place and, and they feel like things just aren't working together and it's, it's, it's been a place of frustration. God, for wherever folks are at this morning, may we have a better recognition that first and foremost we're sent. More than survival, more than success, we've been sent to make dynamic impact for the purposes of Jesus and to point to Jesus himself. And whether that's times of great opposition or great success, with opposition sure to come, 
God, may we come with better expectations, with a deeper resilience, and of course, a more robust joy as we seek to follow you. God, thanks for letting us be a part of what you're doing in the world. May we learn from our brothers and sisters who have gone before us so that we may run this race to the end. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.